that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. There was an article that appeared July 26 of 2011 in Psychology Today, and the article was titled, Self-Preservation Versus the Impulse to Help. Subtitled, Arrested for Feeding the Hungry. The article pointed out how two competing instincts, self-preservation and the impulse to help or altruism, collided in, of all places, Orlando, Florida. When the ordinances of that city, designed to provide civil order, civic order, actually led to the arrest of activists for homeless people. And the article asks the question, has Uncle Scrooge replaced Mickey on the city's totem? As is often the case, the problem was actually due to a technicality. Uh, the organization had already obtained the two permits that the city allows per year for food feeding large groups. Uh, and so the, the arrest wasn't for feeding, it was actually for violating an ordinance regulating permits. But the question remains, when Jesus challenges us in Matthew 26, 5 I mean, to feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, to welcome strangers, to clothe the naked, to visit the sick and the imprisoned, at what point will we allow our own instinct for self-preservation to take priority over our desires and needs to help others, our desires to give? to be altruistic. My friend Neil Wynnum, whom Eric and I had the opportunity to visit with a few weeks ago, has a chapter in this book that I keep referring to. It's uh, called The Preacher's Teacher, The Meaning and the Message of the Sermon on the Mount. Studies in, in honor of Dr. Marion W. Henderson. Uh, Doc was my baseball coach in college. Uh, he and along with Lynn Laughlin, both of whom are now deceased. But uh, Neil's article is on this passage, this section, and uh, it's simply titled, Give to the Evil Person. In his introductory words regarding our text for today, he writes... This passage is telling us that the kingdom of heaven has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with following self-preservation instincts, but rather offers the disciple a new pattern of unprecedented giving, especially toward those who are evil. 
This quotation is the source of the title for my message, if you notice on the little handouts. I simply titled the message, Unprecedented Giving. And the text that we read is much broader than merely an attempt to shame an enemy or to have some kind of reason for maiming somebody else who might have have inflicted violence on us. It's more than a passage to quietly offer peaceful resistance or even trumpeting pacifism in times of war, even though the passage has been used for all of those. No, Neil is correct in pointing out that in this text, Jesus is dismantling the profound and universal tendency to take care of the self at the expense of all others. And it's going to be difficult for us to hear this message since our tendency is to be self-absorbed. Me, myself, and I. What one writer referred to as the unholy trinity. I've been referring from time to time to the work of Pincus Lapid, the Orthodox Jewish scholar. He reminds us that when we look at this passage, that there's actually another aspect of the context that we we really need to remember and think about it. And that comes from a rabbinic expression that was very ancient. That a person should, excuse my attempt at my old Hebrew that I didn't do as well as when I took it as I wanted to, uh, but lifnim mishorat hadin, that is, a person should move beyond the hard borders of legal prescriptions. To put it simply, it means renouncing rights. It means voluntarily assuming a more stringent interpretation of a commandment for ourselves. It means going beyond the obligatory norm. It means easing our demands on our neighbors and working for the common good. You see, the entire sermon is about right relationships as loyal citizens of the kingdom. And so as we begin to dig into the text this morning, I actually want to read the section one more time from the message. And I cheated because my copy that I have is real, real little print. So so I put it bigger for me. Here's how Eugene Peterson translates it. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues you for a shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make it a present. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, Use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. The line that stood out from that for me was use the occasion to practice the servant life. The first thing I want to point out 
as we look at this text this morning is that it is a very familiar which sometimes causes us problems from under, for understanding. But it is a very familiar teaching, but it's also a much abused teaching. The Old Testament reference is found in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. But the idea of an eye for an eye was not unique to Judaism. It was also found in the Code of Hammurabi, which uh, dates back to the 18th century B.C., a legal document from Babylon. And it had become more universally known in the biblical era because uh, it's basically what the Romans referred to as Lex Talianus, uh, the principle of exact retribution, uh, not anything more, not anything less. The principle was designed to entrust appropriate punishment to civil authorities. And secondly, to prevent personal revenge. Now, by the New Testament times, monetary compensation had, uh, in fact, been used to replace physically harming. So if, if someone did injure your hand, there was an amount of money that was established that that would take care of that so you didn't have to cut their hand off. <clears throat> What's important for us to hear though is that it is not, it is not an example or a principle to be practiced at the personal level. <clears throat> for example, <clears throat> not once, but twice, David had the opportunity to take Saul's life. Saul had been threatening. Saul had attempted to take David's life. And by legal practice of that day, had David taken Saul's life, he would not have been charged because of the fact that Saul was trying to kill him. But David said he would not harm God's anointed. I think sometimes we forget that we're called to love our enemies. That even those who are seeking to harm us are God's creation. They're created in the image of God. So, so what is meant in verse 39 when Jesus says, Do not resist the one who is evil. Some of you realize that, that I spent several years studying the Greek language. And I don't use it very often when I'm sharing with you. But there is something very important in the words that Jesus used here that are recorded for us. When he says, May atisthene, do not resist. Whether we translate that word as oppose, resist, fight, stand against, it's not an easy call. But what we need to remember is that the strike on the cheek is not an angry punch. It was a challenge. The challenge to fight. 
You see, as disciples, the emphasis is not to respond in kind nor to engage in verbal attacks on our opponents, but to show love. And of the dozen verses where that phrase that Jesus used appears in the New Testament, six clearly refer to verbal opposition, two simply imply standing up to a higher authority, which is obviously going to be verbal, or you won't be standing up very long. And the other two call specific attention to resisting the devil. And interestingly, the last two are both from the general epistles and along with those are quoted Proverbs 3.24 where essentially it says God mocks the mockers but gives grace to the humble. Once more, the evidence is pointing toward verbal resistance not physical. But this is not just any verbal resistance. Jesus is teaching his disciples not to take the offender into a court of law. In fact, there are four parallels between this passage and Deuteronomy 19, 16-21, which is actually a hypothetical trial in which a false witness had accused a brother and the penalty was based on the Lex Talionis principle. And the fourth parallel seals it, in my opinion. The reason given for the action was to remove the evil one from the community. Not to make them extinct, but just to get that evil influence away. Now you've been there. I had somebody bring me a bushel of apples one time, and I didn't get to it as quickly as I should. You know what happened. The majority of the apples in that bushel that were good did not make the bad apple good. No. The negative influence from the bad apple started spreading out into the good. And that's why it's so important for us as brothers and sisters in Christ to keep all our negativity to ourselves. Not to spread our nasty comments that will only cause problems with the good apples. You want to be a bad apple? Be a bad apple. But go do it off somewhere else on your own. Let me go back to Neil. Here's what he writes. Jesus is teaching his disciples not to fight with words in a court, but to speak with radical generosity when challenged by a strike on the face, sued, drafted by a soldier to carry their load, asked to provide a loan, or act in any similar circumstances. And though Jesus does use hyperbole, I mean... I shared with you, I don't think Jesus actually wanted you to pluck out one of your eyes because you could see with the other one what the one you plucked out was seeing. He didn't want you to literally cut off your hand. He wants us to take radical action to make sure that we are not influenced by the evil around us. 
But I think we have a serious problem also when we try to use hyperbole as a means of interpreting so that we can ease the demands of the sermon. I've heard people say, well, surely Jesus doesn't expect me to be perfect. It says that right there in the sermon. Well, actually, it doesn't. I know it's translated perfect, but the word teleops means whole, complete. We should operate under the assumption that unless Jesus' words cannot be taken literally, then we should take them at face value. And what Jesus is calling for in these verses can easily be taken literally. Not taking someone to court. Going the second mile. Giving to the one who asks. And yes, even turning the other cheek when someone challenges you to a, a duel. Those are all doable. I, I don't care if it's on there. I had a relative one time in my mom and dad's kitchen say, well, let's go out in the street and handle this like me. I looked at him and I said, you have to be kidding. I wasn't even a part of what was going on. I simply walked out into the living room, into the kitchen, because he and another cousin were at it. And I wanted to make sure nothing happened in my mom's kitchen. Oh, what do you think you're doing here? Are you going to solve the problem because you're the big, bad, retired policeman? Why don't we go out in the street? I turned and walked away. As did the two that were originally, the other one that was originally involved in the skirmish. Sometimes we just need to turn the other cheek. And that brings me to my final point. That the emphasis of these verses has to do with practicing the principle of selflessly giving. Let me repeat that. Practicing the principle of selflessly giving. In fact, Jesus' emphasis demonstrates that we should practice the principle of selflessly giving more than is demanded in each of these four incidences. The first had to do with uh, understanding a difference between a guilt culture like we live in in the Western world and an honor and shame culture. In that society, a challenge... Man, to walk away from that was to be shamed, to lose your honor. That's a serious problem in that kind of a culture. A friend of mine who was in the Middle East a few years ago said that he was standing at a booth getting ready to buy something. All of the wares were spread all out there in the open and the guy heard somebody holler something about something going on out the street and he took off running, left the stand and went down there left all of his material possessions to go down because there was a quarrel going on between two families and it was an issue of honor and shame. He didn't care about the material possessions. What was more important was a person's honor, a family's honor. 
in collective societies. Identity is defined by being a, by the group that you belong to. Why do you think we're having so much problems with gangs in different areas? Because those young people don't feel like they're anybody growing up in the homes that they're growing up with. And so they find this gang that will make them feel wanted and a part regardless of what it means that they might have to do to gain that honor of being a part of a family. Now we, we're more concerned about the cost materially and financially than we are about the shame that might be brought on the community. And so Jesus points out that when we're treated as victims of shameful acts, when honor is life's most important commodity, then any insult to one's honor must be vigorously defended. But most honor and shame cultures are antagonistic. And so they compete for their honor. And so Jesus' teaching to turn the other cheek it has nothing to do with Rome or the zealots or anything of that sort. It's about how people treat each other in the daily grind of life where disputes and challenges are bound to erupt as tempers naturally flare. Now, listen to me. Because we are not expected and we should not tolerate ongoing abuses. If you ever hear that I've been arrested... I'm going to tell you right now what's probably going to be the cause. I either witnessed a child or a woman being abused. Because I, I don't know that I'm going to be able to stand back and not step in. We're not expected to tolerate abuse, whether it's physical or otherwise. That only allows the oppressors to go unpunished. Jesus is teaching on transforming relationships at the personal level through selfless giving offers us as true disciples a much needed alternative to the courtroom, to the hecklers, to those who ridicule the church. And in verse 40, where Jesus is responding to known Jewish tradition regarding a lawsuit over a tunic, the issue is being treated as people under God's law. And in Exodus 2 and Deuteronomy 4, the cloak that is taken in a pledge for a loan, that's fine until sunset when the person needs that for warmth at night. It needs to be returned to its owner. It can be once again obtained the next day. And the basis of the teaching is compassion. Amazingly though, Jesus is saying, however, that the disciple should give up not only that for which he sued, but also the cloak. Which, literally, is going to leave the person destitute and naked hopelessly flabbergasting the opponent. The third illustration called to attention is the Roman practice of pressing a civilian into service, making them carry the backpacks and load for a, a mile, a Roman mile. 
That's basically what took place, by the way, when Simon of Cyrene was compelled to take the cross of Jesus and take it to the Golgotha. To take that boat and carry it for a mile. And Jesus' instruction to go the second mile moves beyond the render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, which would literally be the case in the first mile. The second mile, by meeting oppressors with compassion and kindness, renders to God the things that are God's. And can you imagine the conversation that could take place between somebody when he told that Roman soldier, oh, no, no, that's okay, I know it's a mile, but I'll go ahead the second mile with you. You're going to do what? Oh, I'm, I'm going to carry your load for another mile. I know you can't make me, but I'm going I'm to do it. Why would you do that? Why won't you participate in some of those things that everybody else is doing? The opportunity to share the changes in our life because of Jesus Christ happen in that second mile. The final illustration, it's a reference to the practice of almsgiving. It's intriguing, though, I think, that in verse 42, there's no sum specified. And now Jesus doesn't require more than is asked, but only what is asked. When somebody begs, give to them. But also notice that it doesn't necessarily involve just an adversary. And yet the disciple is still required to offer something. Once again, my friend Neil is right to the point. To self-absorbed, consumer-driven, middle and upper-class Americans. The message of Jesus is painfully clear. To summarize, you must change your entire orientation toward money. Rather than borrowing and owing for all you can get, give generously. Beyond your sense of duty to all who are in need. So let me bring this to some form of conclusion. You might have noticed that there's a subtle, forward-looking undercurrent that is winding its way through our text. A text that is no doubt troubling to many people. And the undercurrent is that the gospel, the good news, is always, always about giving more than what is expected. For example, I don't know that I've ever preached a sermon on tithing in the six years that I've been here. Anybody remember me ever preaching a sermon on tithing? Oh, let me just take a little snippet. The tithe is not hard to understand. If I make $100, I move the decimal point over and $10 of it's God's. If I make $500, I move the decimal point over one place and $50 of it's God's. If I make $1,000, I move the decimal point over one place and $100 of it is God's. But listen to me. Biblically speaking, that's the foundation. 
So when the Bible talks about tithes and offerings, it's not using two words that are synonymous for the same thing. The offerings come above and beyond the tithe. You see, the gospel is always about abandoning every last instinct of self-preservation in favor of the greater good. I I saw it in my father. I I shared with you the story about how one time a couple that he had just married, when they went to start up the car to leave to go on their honeymoon, the car went... And everybody knew the blood was not a good blood. And the tears started down their faces. And my dad had a relatively new, it wasn't a brand new, it was, he bought it as a used vehicle. But he had a relatively new Cadillac at that time. And he walked over, handed the keys to the groom and turned to the people and said, get everything transferred over into my car and sent them on their honeymoon. And I heard him over and over with different things say, it's not mine, it's God's. I'm just a steward. I'm just the one God's letting take care of it here on earth. So here's my challenge for you and for me. We need to hear the call to passive, cruciform, that means cross-shaped, passive, cruciform ministry, anticipating our identity with Christ's own passion. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 reads, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So Jesus, on the cross, could say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen, when he was being stoned, could say, forgive them. Somebody actively taking his life by stoning him, he looks up, he sees a vision of heaven and he forgives them. And he dies. But sometimes we're far more concerned with living, with self-preservation. How old was your child when you heard him the very first time say, Mine! (laughs) Where did they learn that from? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for your word. Even though it, it steps on our toes so hard. Help us to get rid of all the self preservation instincts that we carry and strive to find ways to reach out to others in love. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus.
Amen.